line is really along the same lines, except we're going to actually hear both wisdom and foolishness and the invitations they offer. We're going to be able to contrast them, so we'll get started in that and then take a break and uh, finish it. So, uh, chapter 9, would somebody read 1 to 6? Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. Okay, so look at wisdom here. What did wisdom do? She built her house. What does that tell you about wisdom? She's a hard worker. She's industrious. She's hewn out her seven pillars. You know, it's a sturdy, solid house she made. What else did she do? Made some growth. Yeah, she, she made a feast. She got the table all set. And then what does she do? Send invitations. Yeah, she sent out her maidens to call people to come and enjoy her banquet. Now, who does the invitation to enjoy the feast go to? The naive and the ones who lack understanding. The invitations then are based on what? Need. That's exactly right. These invitations don't come based upon what a person has, but what they lack. Everyone who needs wisdom is invited to come and enjoy her feast. This is not a feast for the elite. This is a feast for those who are the neediest uh, people, who those who are starving. Come, eat of my food, and drink of the wine I've mixed. You know, there's a, there's a strong appeal. Come on. And uh, wisdom says, forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. Wisdom is begging everybody, you need my feast and you need to get away from those ways of foolishness. But when you see wisdom offering this invitation, the fact that it is an invitation says what about us? We have a choice. It is up to us to decide to turn away from the path of foolishness and turn to wisdom. That's up to us. To decide we want to take advantage of the feast. It's a wise move. Much better. Matter of life and death. Stakes are high. But we have to decide it. You ever been in this situation? Somebody you really, really love who's doing something really, really bad, and you try to get them to change, and you think, oh, what can I do to get them to change? What can you do to get them to change? Nothing. Nothing. Can you offer wisdom's way? Can you show why they ought to take it? Can you encourage, persuade, pray? Yes. Can you get them to change? Ultimately, not even wisdom herself makes people walk her path. She invites, she calls out, she's loud about it, she goes where they are, and she begs and she pleads. But it's still up to each person to decide which way to walk. Comments and questions? <laughs>
Jesus. But Jesus himself couldn't convert some people. Yeah. And he had, you know, he always said the right thing. And, you know, if people couldn't turn to God and talking to him, then, you know, we can't blame ourselves if somebody doesn't choose to follow. Sometimes it's important to show that too. You know, it's like, I think sometimes we need to let people know, I want you to take the right path. But it is up to you. It is not up to me. Sometimes it's important to show our children that. Ultimately, what path you choose will not be my decision as a parent. It's your choice. You can't just look around and say, well, you know what my parents were like. It's your choice. The two ways are open to you. Wisdom's calling out to you. And, and each one of us is responsible. We make the decision for ourselves. Other thoughts? Alright, why don't we take a uh, 10 or 15 minute break uh, and then we'll come back for a slightly longer session. I just thought that. And then we'll come to Folly's invitation and uh, we'll see the comparisons and contrasts. But 7 through 12, Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 12. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, for he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. It's interesting, the responses of people to rebuke and correction. <laughs> what if you correct a scoffer or reprove a wicked man? What happens? He turns on you. <laughs> I'll tell you what. You know, it's going to be bad news. He is not going to like it. He's going to look at you as like being an enemy to him. And uh, he's going to be very resentful of your efforts to help by correcting him. Uh, well, what if you reprove a wise man? He'll love you. He'll love it. He'll love you. He'll appreciate it. And he'll benefit by it. He'll get wiser. He'll learn more. He will profit by efforts to try to correct and instruct him. So what should we get out of that? Two things. Be prepared, uh, depending on the person you are offering wisdom to. Yes. The response will be, and then we need to be like the wise man and be willing to accept advice. How do we respond when people correct us and when they show us that we're wrong? Do you love those people who rebuke you? Or do you really try to avoid them and not like them very much? J.D.? It's shown that there's wisdom in how we respond. And, and so it's not, we are not necessarily wise because we <coughs> know how to handle things. But humility is that key. And that ties right back in with the fear of the Lord. Is that, that uh, humility and, and willingness to yield. Very much so. <coughs> Think about, yeah, Cass. Uh, I just got a question. 
um, I don't really understand why it says, uh, uh, like, you, you will get, like, sort of punishment in a way for, I mean, like, uh, a bad, uh, reaction from a skull. Isn't that what we're supposed to do, is try and correct those? Yeah, but if you're correcting a scoffer, what will he do? Scoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'll get mad at you. He'll take it out on you. He w he will resent the correction. But wouldn't that, but still wouldn't that wouldn't that be what we needed to do was to correct? Sure, but be ready. But yeah, I think it is what we need to do. But I think what he's really showing is the different character of people in terms of how they respond to the correction. Not everybody likes it. <laughs> it's good for us to know that, because otherwise we're going to like, whoa, I tried to help them, and look what happened. Well, yeah, they were a scoffer. What would you expect? Uh, but we don't want to be a scoffer. <laughs> now, think about this one. When do we get to the point where we really don't need correction and instruction? Somewhere in six yeah. We, we always can learn more. You know, the wise man just gets wiser. That's we need to really see that and, and really pursue that. Don't think, oh now nobody needs to instruct me. I've got it. No, doesn't work that way. He says again in ten, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't have true wisdom apart from God. And that theme that you start with the fear of God is at all these critical junctures of the book. Beginning, the end, and right here at the end of this first major section. And then look at 11 and 12. Look at the blessings in 11 that come to the person who receives wisdom. But look at 12. What does he mean? If you're wise, you're wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you alone will bear it. What's that trying to say? Yes, what you were talking about before, like you can't make somebody else do the right thing and sort of in the same way, like you're gonna get the whatever, the consequences of what you do. Yes. Personal responsibility. You know, you yourself are the one who's the gainer or the loser. You know, you decide, you got the burden of choosing. And if you choose the right thing, it'll be a blessing to you. If you choose the wrong thing, it'll be a, a bad thing for you. We can't escape having to make that choice and live with the consequences. Comments and questions on this section? Just that last point, verse 12, should be a comfort to us. That all this hard work, someone else is not going to uh, bear the fruits of it. We're, we're going to receive the blessings for the wisdom we sought after. Good point. <coughs> J.D. kind of alluded to this, I don't know, maybe I didn't understand, maybe tried to say this and I just wasn't catching on, but um, I think humility in on both sides of that are important. Humility to be able to take the criticism, but also humility when you give criticism. You know, rebuking is a strong term, but that doesn't mean you have to do it in, in an arrogant, puffed up, I'm better than you type of a way. We have to look at ourselves why we are rebuking, why we are correcting, what is our purpose in it praying about those types of things. So humility in both, on both sides is extremely important. No doubt, though that's not his primary focus here, but that's certainly true. Think of it though, 
from the standpoint of the guy who's listening to the review. Somebody is correcting him. Do you usually just say, oh, I don't want to be corrected? Now, I mean, how would that look? You know, you don't usually say that. But we have more sophisticated ways of rejecting reproof. Like, well, that guy who talked to me about that didn't have a very good attitude. You know, he's got a lot of problems in his own life. What's he trying to do correcting me? Etc. You always, if, if you want to reject it, you just start saying, he didn't do it right. And he didn't. There are people who don't rebuke. Well, <laughs> uh, there are people who are rather distant from us. They're not very close to us. They may not be very attached to us. And so when they rebuke us, <laughs> insensitive. It's like pretty cold. Like just sort of like <laughs> there. That doesn't feel good. I'd much rather be rebuked by somebody who was trying to, you know, spare my feelings in the process and trying to kind of make sure it wasn't too overwhelming to me. And, you know, pulling me close and giving me a hug while they were telling me what I needed to hear. But you know what? Those guys who don't particularly like me and just give me sort of a cold, barren rebuke, a lot of times they get it right. They're not influenced by wanting to preserve the relationship. And a lot of times they're going to lay it on the line because they're kind of annoyed. And, and they may very well do better with helping me than the guy who's really close to me, who's just so worried that, you know, I'm going to get my feelings hurt. I don't know. I, there have been times I've been rebuked, not very well. I hated it. But it's helped me. I mean, there are some rebukes I've received that to this day they hurt me every time I think about them. And they just, man, they go through me. But the, I, they have helped me make some changes that I've needed to make. And I recognize that the Lord you know, work through those, and I needed those, and I am appreciative of the fact that I received them, even though they still were given in such a way that it, it pains me when I think about them. But, I mean, thank God, he lets us have those. I don't care how, the, how you're rebuked. If it's valid, you need to learn from it. I mean, that's the wise man. <coughs> Other thoughts? Patrick? You know, I think it's interesting, this passage is talking about how the rebuker needs to be blameless or how he needs to fit a certain qualification to do that. And I think, you know, like you were saying, we, we focus on that a lot of the time. And, you know, it's so ridiculous to think, well, even though I might have this wrong, he's still, yes, you know, yes. it's almost like Who is he to say? a comfort to us. And we can't think along those lines. This passage deals with our response to it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, I think it's <clears throat> important that it, verse 12 doesn't say, you scoff, well, you're just a product of your environment and you can't really help in any way. <laughs> so we won't hold you responsible. In fact, we'll give you some money to help you <laughs> do a little bit better. <laughs> we need to exercise some personal responsibility and you know, take responsibility for it when we do something foolish. However you want to uh, term it, 
Taking personal responsibility is a huge concept in the Bible. Other thoughts? Yes, Phil. One thing that I know I don't appreciate is when people come up and just, they throw out the truth. Especially when it's convicting, like, they don't hold back, don't beat around the bush, but they give you the blunt truth. And it's going to smack you like a two-by-four outside the head. <laughs> it's this truth that, you know what, you've been erring in your ways that you've sinned against God, and it's, they're not going to sugarcoat it because that's not what you need. You need the truth. And that's, we get wrapped up in the moment, we get wrapped up in emotion, and we can't appreciate but we have to have the foresight to see, you know, down the road, this is what I need, and this is what's going to be good for me and my soul. Yeah. Uh, I had the blessing recently of having a lot more interactions with people from different cultural backgrounds, from different countries that aren't, you know, white, middle class, you know, Americans. And uh, I think that we are probably on the, already on the sensitive end. I think that a lot of other people in other parts of the world are much freer <coughs> with rebukes and they're willing to listen and share. And they don't hate you. They are telling you something that is, is good for you to hear. And so it may be helpful for a help for us to realize we're probably overly sensitive as is and we it is so helpful when people rebuke us like you said with a hug and helping you but if they don't i mean you know we, we need to we need to be thoughtful and listen to it like this pastor says many years ago there was a man who came to me i didn't know him very well i knew him he was a well thought of man with an important responsibility and he had a problem uh, sort of an addiction in his life and he came to me, uh, he set an appointment, said he wanted to talk to me. He wasn't in the church where I was, or anything like that. And he explained to me his problem. And he asked if he could become accountable to me. He said, I chose you because I thought you'd tell me what I needed to hear and because we're not very close. And I thought that would make it more likely that you would tell me what I needed to hear. There was some wisdom in that, I think, on his part. You know, it's really challenging to do this. And I, I'm not saying I do this as well as I need to. It's really hard. But who do you go to when you really want and need good advice? Do you go to the people you think will be really sensitive toward your feelings? Or the people you think will really tell you what you need to hear? Jonathan? Um, you know, going along with what you said before, people that give you advice, you know, like your friends, they're interested in preserving their friendship. They don't want to say anything where it hurts you. But really, you know, Christ wasn't concerned about, you know, hurting people's feelings, going along the way and telling them what to do. And he was only concerned about their soul. And that's how we need to see it, you know, we're concerned about the end product that we're going to get out of rebuking people and how we're going to change their soul and change their life. And we don't need to worry about, you know, the physical aspects of what we can gain. It's a good point. And we're so sometimes focused on preserving friendship, but if we actually think about it, if we lose that friendship and their soul is saved, it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. And if we have the kind of friendship that allows us to talk about these things, we should already be pretty good enough friends that we can handle this kind of thing. But even if we can't, and we end up not being friends anymore, if we're both saved, it was worth it. Excellent comment.
All right, the opposite invitation, 13 to 18. Woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits in the doorway of her house, on the seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Very interesting. Here's this other woman. And he describes her. What is she like? Wild and dumb. Your American standard says she's boisterous. She is turbulent. She's passionate. She's, you know, excitable. She's not solid and substantial. But she's loud, and she's uh, sort of flashy, and she's not calm and dignified like wisdom. She's really showy, and uh, sort of in a bad sense, glamorous. So she's boisterous, she's naive. You wouldn't have thought that, would you? You would have thought, now she's really sharp. She has no moral fiber to resist any temptation. She is no better off than the people she's inviting. She herself swallows her own line. And she knows nothing. She is willfully ignorant. You can't listen to her for guidance. She is recklessly ignoring the consequences of where she's going. And where does she go to make her appeal? Front porch. <laughs> Front porch. Not a little different from wisdom. What does that tell you about folly? No one seems more lazy. Much more lazy. Do you read about her building a house? Do you read about her preparing a meal and setting a table and sending messages? She just goes out on the front porch. Tyler. I mean, you can also kind of see that she doesn't have to go very far in order to find people. You're exactly right. Wisdom has a lot harder time finding people that will listen than what Folly does. You know, wisdom has to seek them out. Folly just sits down on her front porch and they flock in. You know, but, but she doesn't have any discipline. She didn't have any, any you know, she just, she just kind of plops down there and and attempts uh, the people to turn aside to her paths. Um, she calls to them, tries to get their attention, and she distracts them over to her party lifestyle. And then you've got what she actually says in 16 to 18. Whoever's naive, let him turn in here. <coughs> Verse 4. See any comparisons there? <laughs> um, you know, these simple people, these gullible people, <clears throat> you know, wisdom saying, here's where to go, but the woman folly, she's inviting them the very same way. And what's, what's she appealing to them with? Water, 
That is fascinating. <laughs> it's amazing she gets anybody. What was what had wisdom prepared? A feast. Oh, a feast, a banquet. Gonna choose bread and water over a banquet? What made this appeal attractive? Yeah. Stolen water. It's forbidden. You know, I think they tell the story on Augustine. I think he said this in his memoirs or something. That the pears on his neighbor's tree were not as good as the pears on the tree in his yard, but they'd always climb the neighbor's tree and steal his pears. Because it was more fun. <laughs> <laughs> We have this thing in us that likes to do the daring wrong thing just because it's forbidden. There's something exhilarating about feeling like you can get by with something prohibited. The thrill of going out of bounds gives you a sense of freedom, of power. In fact, for a lot of people, the greater the risk, the more intense the thrill. She's appealing with bread and water, but it's stolen water. It's secret bread. Isn't that crazy? And people flock in. He does not know, verse 18, that the meal is toxic. The dead are there. This is a life and death choice. How many times do we choose the forbidden bread and water? Somebody who hasn't been here. Over the feast of wisdom. There's lots of things to say about all this. Your comments and questions. Josh. I think in 15 it's interesting to see who she's calling to. She's calling to those who are going straight on their way. Um, you know, these aren't necessarily people who are looking for trouble um, or looking you know, for this stolen bread and, want, and water. But they're people who are going you know, about their day with a purpose. They're going straight to their destination. But she's standing here on the side of the road um, to persuade them away from that. Um, and so I think that's really a warning to us. Even though we might be going about our lives as we should and are doing the right things, folly is still there um, on the side of our path trying to sway. Excellent point. There is the enticement to do wrong even on the right path. Peter. Um, I think it still just comes down to our own selfishness and instant gratification. We live in a society where we, we want what we want, when we want it, and we want it now. So, like my Bible says, who are making their path straight. So, they're going somewhere. They're working. And instead of continuing working, reaching the destination, and enjoying the pleasures then, hey look, there's bread and water here. We can just stop, eat, 
and they don't know it, but die. <laughs> so. <laughs> yep. So it's really interesting to me that wisdom says, you know, the simple-minded turn here, and then you're going to gain understanding and wisdom. But yet, the foolishness says, the simple turn here, because that's who I can go after. That's the ones who are going to be able to be drawn away. And so, it's almost like if we are getting enticed by this, by the follies of the world, that it's almost time to step up and realize that we have a lot of work to do. Because we still need to be pursuing this wisdom and knowledge that is going to take us in the opposite direction. Good boy. Stephen. I think it's interesting that we see both wisdom and the woman of folly appealing to the naive and him who lacks understanding. Um, but it's right after it says, who are making their path straight. Um, it's very possible to you know, be on the right path and doing a lot of right things, but still be you know, very naive and very lacking in our understanding. Wisdom and, and folly never quit calling. They're always kind of, you know, it's not just like a one-time decision, like, okay, now I'm on the straight path, and I don't have to worry about, you know, being called away, but they're constantly at us. Good point. There's several things between the two that are, are similar. I don't know if there's more to that, but, you know, in, in 9 to 14, the doorway of the house and the seat by the high places, uh, 9-3, from the tops of the heights of the city, and all the way back in 8, uh, two on the top of the heights beside the way, you know, and we're talking about both the wisdom and the folly, the two opposites, but there's a lot of things there that are the same, like we just mentioned, and, the, yeah. and then whoever is naive. Now, you could look at that either way. If you're on one side, the naive to, the, to your position are the ones you're calling, and then from the other side, it's the same they'd be calling the naive to, to my position. So, uh, I don't know, or do you see uh, three groups? The wisdom, the folly, and, and the naive in the middle? Or do you see wisdom calling the naive from those of the, of the folly? Or do you, do you see what I'm saying? I don't know if it makes a big difference, but. Probably it doesn't. I see three groups, but I can see the, the other way too. I'm not sure there. I'm not sure it's one or the other, I can see. Okay. Both of those. But you definitely have a lot of parallels. I mean, your wisdom and folly are competing kind of in the same way with the same people, you know, and they're doing a lot of things that are similar. And yet, wow, the destinies are totally opposite. Jake? Um, this, this just reminds me a lot of, like, a father's warning to his child. You know, you can, you can ride that bike without training wheels, but I don't think you're ready yet. And you're, you're probably going to, you know, when you fall in... Scrape your knee. It's your problem. Like in verse 12, if you're wise, you're wise for yourself. And if you stop, you will bear it alone. So, that's kind of what this passage is. I think so. Jay? Uh, going back to humility, they say the same thing, right? Whoever is simple and turning here. But after it, in verse 5, wisdom appeals to really only the humble. Leave your simple ways. You know, so who's going to who's going to admit to, oh, I'm, I'm simple, I need this. Well, a humble person will. But then folly appeals to this pride and kind of get away with it. You know, stone water is sweet. So if there's a part of the message is identical, which way do I go? And the humble will choose wisdom. And those trying to get away with something, um, prideful will, will choose folly. Good point. Just. I, I think it's important to uh, recognize that wisdom is, by character, a producer and folly by character as a consumer. 
Uh, and there's a temptation to uh, think that we're the exception. When we follow, follow after folly, uh, we won't be consumed. We're going to get away with this one. But again, verse 18, we're going to be dead just like everybody else. We'll be consumed. Yeah, it's it's uh, one out of one that goes down the road of folly ends up in death. Tim? Well, along with what Chris said then, if there's a lot of similarities between the two calling us, what kind of warning is that for us, I guess, or what do we need to be aware of and, and looking at that and thinking about that? Because they're going to sound the same. It's not like go for the loud one because that's wisdom and, you know, folly is calling quietly. No, it, it's still going to be calling loudly for us. We've got to pay attention to know which one is wisdom and which one's folly. Good point. Mm-hmm. Something that just seems like is so consistent about Satan is he imitates truth. And even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And it sounds like it's the same like, come in here, I've got food and water, but you got to look at what kind of food and what kind of water and, you know, the, the distinctions. You have to get a little closer and find out if it's a deception. Good point. And the difference along with that you pointed out earlier, uh, wisdom is always right. And so how do we discern the difference between wisdom and folly? Wisdom is always proclaiming the right way, the just way. Mm-hmm. Good point. Other thoughts? Good, good comments. Yes, Logan. <coughs> in 17 it says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And then in Proverbs 20, verse 17, it says, Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. And it's like the stolen bread. It's sweet at first, but it bites back. Exactly. Which, of course, is so much Proverbs point. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's tasty. You'll love it. What about when your mouth gets filled with gravel after you eat it? You know, there's a bad aftertaste to the stolen water. Okay. All right. That leads us to Proverbs. Been in it for nine chapters, but now we go 